OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Perfect. Let's kick this off. So welcome, everybody. Today, we are at OPN Supporters Fund Ask an Angel, and I'm pretty excited today because we're meeting with uh, James Sowers, and I'm probably saying that wrong, James, so you can correct me, um, but I had the pleasure of uh, meeting James, I guess, online, and then we jumped into a conversation, and it was fantastic, and uh, I couldn't wait to actually get into an interview and chat with James because I thought, man, this guy's got so much energy that uh, we've got to figure out how to bottle this up and get it out to everybody, so... Uh, James, welcome to the show. We're super excited to have you. And you know what? Why don't we start off by you giving us a little bit of a background on kind of where you've come from, who you are, and then to end it off, one thing that we will not know about you that you want to share. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm James Sauer. So you did pronounce it correctly. You get, you know, A plus, right? And um, I'm actually adopted from South Korea. And I was an orphan as a child, but then I got adopted and I lived in Baltimore, Maryland. And as a little kid, I was kind of a little hustler, would find pennies on the ground, save them up and then buy packs of swimsuit cards. And I think it was about 25 cents for the whole pack. And there was 12 cards and I would break the pack up and sell the cards as pieces. You're going to make a profit, get whatever I could, at least 25 cents a card. But sometimes you get a couple dollars if somebody really liked the card. So that was kind of basically my introduction into business, even though I didn't really know it was business and you're managing profits and losses and read about, you know, athletes and investors and people at the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's. Wow. If I can learn their way of thinking, then maybe one day I can be like them. So by the time I had gotten to college, I had saved up some money and started investing in the stock market. And I got lucky because one of them did pretty good. And about um, four years ago or so, I really got involved in investing in startups through different vehicles. So that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at now. And in the last four years, I've like, it's been a real journey. I've learned a lot and it seems to be ever changing. It's like an ever changing thing. What, what was relevant four years ago isn't relevant today. And probably four years from now, it won't be relevant. Well, that's very true. And what's that one thing that nobody would know about you? About me? Um, that I haven't um, been back to South Korea since I was adopted. Like a lot of people think I've been back, but I've, I've never been back. And that was the only time I actually ever flew. I, I, I was obviously flown from South Korea to United States and I haven't flown since then. I was going to start flying this year, but then the COVID happened. Ah, very cool. I, I actually started talking to wheels up and I was going to get a membership, but then the COVID happened. And I was like, I think I'll you know, put a halt on traveling anywhere for now. Because before that, the last four years, I've been driving around everywhere, seeing the whole country. I mean, it's kind of crazy in, in a Toyota Prius. <laughs> ah, that's wicked. I hope you recorded it all and posted it everywhere. It sounds like a great little story, great adventure. <laughs> it's a great adventure for sure. Ah, I love it. Well, there was one thing that we talked about that I thought really goes back to your background. So you've always been kind of finding ways to hustle. And what I loved about that is that um, when I talk to a lot of investors or a lot of entrepreneurs, that a lot of their childhood exploitations really come out when they get older. Like they probably didn't even realize that, like you said, when you were selling cards, that you were doing something to generate revenue, generate money, find ways to kind of keep moving forward. And how much that changes and shifts to your current life now that you probably went through and then one day you're working on a new startup and you're like, you know what? I forgot all about this. I used to actually sell cards. I used to do this. I used to do that. And you really look back that a lot of the skill set that you've built up, you learned from when you were a kid. 
Uh, do you find that true today in a lot of the things that you're doing? Oh, I think that's so true in every aspect in life, because I remember hearing some speech on YouTube that Steve Jobs gave. I think it was at Stanford about connecting the dots. And you really don't really see the dots going forward. But when you look back, you can see how they connect. And I really think a lot of things that defines people, you don't really know it is their habits. And you really form habits when you're younger by the different things you do and the people you meet and associate with and the things you learn. You start forming habits and discipline and things like that. And I think especially in public markets, too, emotion and discipline and psychology is more important than anything else. Because a lot of people might have got into the right stock and ended up being the next Microsoft or Tesla early, but they sold way too soon. So if they didn't have the discipline to hold long enough to realize massive gains, then they would have never got them. Uh, that's a good point. And I think this kind of, kind of works into your thesis on how and what you're looking for when you're working for startups, correct? Right, because you're looking for certain traits in the founders. Because so the one thing I've learned is the timing is really the most important thing. So if it's the wrong time, you could have the most genius founder, the most genius idea, even the most genius product. But if it's not time for either a technology inflection or an adoption inflection, then people just aren't going to do it. It's just like Uber and Lyft. People had that idea many years before Uber and Lyft. But until you had not just the iPhone, but you had to have the geotagging where somebody could press the button and the car shows up in five, 10 minutes that people would use that versus alternative services. Because it was, to me, I'm learning it's making people's lives better. It's saving them time. So if you're saving people time, money, or kind of like releasing a pain, I call them your painkillers, then people are going to use it. Because I've also learned that the best technology and the best product doesn't always win. It's the one that gets the best adoption. No, you're right. And about I think that. people are resonating with those products, and that's why they adopt, even though it may not be the best technology. And you mentioned timing is key, and, and I, I totally resonate with this. And I think it's uh, it goes with the cycle, but also trying to figure out what fits in that timing. What if if it's herd mentality? What's actually going to get other people to see through what I'm doing, so that they'll want to adapt to it and use it, versus uh, this is too complicated. So, as an example, uh, Zoom took off. Uh, we've been using Skype, uh, Google Hangouts, all these different platforms. But as soon as there was one change that happened, which was COVID, then all of a sudden everybody started to figure out, oh, I need this platform. How am I going to work with other people? How many? Well, there's a million platforms, but Zoom seemed to came to come in there. I don't know if it was because it was one word and it just happened to be what was people were looking for. But man, it just took right off. It had been we've been using Zoom for a couple years before that. Nothing crazy. And it went onto the markets and then all of a sudden everybody and their grandmother, including schools, educators, everybody were like, wow, I got to use this. So timing and some good luck obviously helps, uh, but it really is how that market shifts and how people are actually working within that market. Uh, so now being able to work online seems a lot easier because all these other tools are starting to flutter to the top and now everybody's more comfortable with it. So now working from home is not as strict and hard to do as it was two years ago than it is today. Right. I think Zoom had a big adoption inflection because COVID kind of sped that up. I think that sped up a lot of adoption inflections because I think kind of the directional errors is we've been moving towards technology becoming more symbiotic with us, but it's been moving at a and all of a sudden it went like that and did like seven years and seven months. People, because they had to adopt, they did. And then of course, because Zoom's made a lot of changes too since COVID started. That's true. Yeah. They added more security features and a few other things. Uh, just to share that the video on your end is kind of a bit, it's choppy a little bit, just as an FYI, but we'll keep going. So far, it's holding well. Um, so as you've kind of been working through, uh, and, and I love the adoption inflection and timing, uh, saving time and money and, and bringing this painkiller and solving it. 
I think those are uh, really reflective of how a startup should be viewing themselves. Um, a few of the things that we really dove into the other day, which I, I thought would be something to, to touch base on, was when you're going into these investments and you know there's different opportunities um, on different products, different services, and things that you're looking at, there was a lot of stuff that we chatted about, which was on the terms and how investment is working and things that you've gone through and experiences Maybe we can talk about a couple of those because I think highlighting kind of how you look at a startup from beginning to end and the things that you've learned from the first time you invested to the time you've invested now, what kind of nuances, what kind of things that you look for to ensure that you're securing your investments so that, you know, four years from now, you're actually going to get an exit versus uh, a thank you and you walk away with nothing. <laughs> yeah, one thing I think a lot of people have learned, not just myself, is that the, um, the original pre-money safe had a lot of flaws in it. One, one of the flaws was actually bad because a lot of the founders were getting diluted so much they didn't realize it. And another problem I'm starting to see too is the stacking of safes. So people were doing one round using a safe note and then another round using a safe note and another round. And I don't think they realize how bad they're diluting themselves. And what happens is when one of these convert, they're like, oh my God, I thought I still own 50% of the company, the founder, and now they've owned 12%. And the next thing you know, COVID hits, they have a down round. They're like, oh my God, now I own 3%. It's not really worth me to keep on going. So they just shut down the company. I think a lot of that is going on nowadays. And I know YC tried to fix that with the post money safe to help out the founders. So in theory, they would know how much they're being diluted. But I have a feeling until these things actually convert, people don't really know. Another thing I'm starting to wonder about, too, is I'm seeing not all the states, but some of them say converts to safe preferred shares. So is that subordinate to regular preferred shares? I mean, I don't know. And I don't think anyone knows until these convert. Because one problem you run into with some of the startups that are doing really, really well is they'll get a big round from some big VC or now a sovereign wealth or PE fund. But that fund puts in, you know, enormous amounts of money, 10 million, 50 million, but they get a two or three X liquidity preference. So if that company ends up getting acquired, even though you were the first check in, if it doesn't exceed that liquidity preference, you could actually be getting zero. That was the one that really kind of piqued my interest. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, the liquidity preference, because I think you'll see this more in, uh, U.S.-based investment options versus in the Canadian or global uh, aspects, but it 100% does occur and it does happen when it's bigger money. So maybe touch a little bit more on that and where that can be beneficial for an investor to take a look at, or but also on the um, startup side on things that they should also be leery of when they're signing these deals. Right. So the hard thing about that is because if you were in first and they come in later, you don't know that's going to happen. But you just got to be mindful that this could happen because just to use easy math, if somebody like a soft bank, not to pick on them, but just use an example because everybody knows they can write monstrous checks at will, writes a hundred million dollar check, but a three X liquidity preference. If that comp even though you, you hear in the news, wow, someone's had a billion dollar valuation, SoftBank or whoever invested 100 million, you don't realize it's a 3x liquidity preference. So if that company sells at say 300 million, everybody else gets zero and the SoftBank or whoever the big player was that wrote the monstrous check just gets a 1x, which isn't great for them. But you could have been the very first check in even an idea at a 1 million valuation if you got that lucky and think you're doing so great and you would end up getting zero because of that. I mean, example. But there's a lot of examples, too, where people don't understand when they hear a company got acquired and was like, congratulations, you know, they see it on TechCrunch or whatever or whatever. And um, they don't realize all acquisitions aren't great. Some can be like milestone payments. So you might have got 1x or nothing back. And then later on, if they hit certain milestones, you get 4x or certain payments. 
And then there was examples too, before COVID, I had a couple companies get acquired and you don't necessarily get the money right away. So you're supposed to get the money in like three months or six months or whatever. And then COVID hit and now the acquirers, you know, alleging to everyone, Hey, we don't have any money right now. So nobody's getting anything. So you're probably not going to end up getting anything. Cause if that company acquired them ends up, you know, going bust or whatever. So it's not always, you know, all, I guess, puppy dogs and everything that everybody thinks when it's an acquisition. So does it, does it, in this, I've seen this in, in other instances too, is it, uh, it's until the money's in the bank, you kind of have to be a little bit more cautious of, of how you uh, orchestrate your dealings. But uh, do you look at, you know, there's options where you can do uh, vested options. If you do get purchased, it can be stock options where you're being invested by your company gets purchased and then you're invested in that new company. Um, and then your stock valuation ends up going up from say the value of your company was 10 million at the, at the sale price. Uh, but the other company's worth 200 million. So you're buying into that at that value. They give you maybe a 1% buyout over three years. So are you looking at uh, kind of shifting the way that that should happen and try to do more deals where you're getting more cash up front? Or what things do you recommend for an owner to take a, pay attention to as they're going through this and they're giving out equity and they're, they're building the structure of getting to this $100 million company? Is there some things that they should be looking at and, and taking um, a better approach on their cap table or how they're, uh, they're operating? Yes, the startups should definitely be mindful of their cap table, especially with, we kind of mentioned the stacking the safes. And also I've noticed too, a number of companies do more than one convertible note because it seems like the seed rounds have gotten so large and like the old seed round, I mean, the old series A is now the seed round and they're getting bigger and bigger. So now companies will have five seed rounds and they'll call them like angel round, pre-seed, seed, seed extension before they even get to a series A. And some of them won't even do a price round. They'll just keep raising two or three million on these convertible notes or safes. I think they're going to be in for a heck of a surprise when they convert and they're diluted way more than they think. So really, yeah, I think being mindful of your cap table. And not only that, you know, once stuff happens, it happens and everyone learns. But I'm starting to think too, some of these startups too, when they get to a point and they're going to be converted, they may find a BC who wants to invest 10 million, but they don't have enough room. So they may say, hey, can you possibly buy out some of our previous investors at a two or three X if they're willing or a five X if they've only been in a year or two? Because for a year or two, that's not bad. And um, just kind of thinking about these things, because um, otherwise it becomes a serious mess when when it's too late. And in the U.S., is there... So I really think cap table management. Yeah, yeah. I like that. And in, in the U.S., is there any um, any rules or regulations against the number of... Um, people on the cap table before it becomes private, non-private, or goes into um, some other structure because you've got two, 300 people on the cap table, or is there 50 minimum and then you have to go to uh, become a, um, a market dealer? Like, is there something along those lines that you have to start looking at or it doesn't work that way in the U.S.? There, there is, but they had made a change several years ago, and I think it's part of the reason why so many companies stayed private, that it used to be, I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it was like around 500 people, including the employees, you had to start reporting as if you were a public company, but then they changed it to some higher number, like either, I don't know the exact number, it could be 3,000, 5,000, not including the employees. And you figure, as you really start to scale out, having all those employees was the biggest number of people on the cap table. So now that allowed for them to have more and more and more investors. Now they have new tools like Reg A plus and Reg CF where people can have thousands of investors and be an emerging business or something like that it's called and have very minimal reporting. So people are doing things like that. So they've really kind of kicked the can down the road where you can stay public 
I mean, private a, a lot longer. And people don't want to deal with the hassle of going public. Because one thing I've learned too, a couple of my companies had looked at it, and the cost of errors and emissions insurance for the board and stuff and things going public is very expensive nowadays because there's so many class actions against public companies going public. And if the stock falls for like one month, they, they get hit with this stuff. Even if it rebounds, they just get hit with you know all these kind of things. And those are extra costs. So it raises the cost of everything. And Zoom was like that. When they went to the, the markets, they, uh, they had a, a down at the beginning of their raise, came out about the security issues that uh, the platform was sold to investors, that it was very highly secured. And then it came out that it was very low secured. So they started to hustle. They got sued by all the investors because they said this stock will never go up over 50 bucks or 75 bucks. And now I'm sure the investors, hopefully the investors pulled that lawsuit back because obviously they're all walking around in the Bahamas loaded, but um, <laughs> obviously at over $500 a share. So I'm not sure what occurred at that out onset if they did cancel it, but you're right. There's a lot of risk and, and uh, concern around the governance of um, once you get to that state of making money, people want to make sure they're getting paid too. Right. It's nuts. <laughs> Uh, it creates a lot of it take, creates a lot of stress for sure. So, in that uh, that governance side of things, um, how have you found that a lot of companies are managing managing this governance to ensure that the company is moving through the right systems, raising at the right time? Uh, do you help companies with that, or is that something you're part of, uh, or you leave that up to the board? Uh, how do you manage through all those different types of growth issues? Yeah, so kind of the way I kind of do it is, you know, the founders, if I invest in a company, they can reach out to me anytime they want and talk about things, you know, regarding the business and things like that, or if they just want to like vent about something in the business. But but normally, you know, if somebody's gotten that far along, Series B or whatever, that they have a board and they have, um, you know, general counsel and things like that at that point. So nobody's really going to listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> they might bounce some of it off me and then do the exact opposite. Because I have a saying, sometimes people just want to be heard. So they already know what they're going to do, but then they've gotten far enough along, but they just want to call somebody they know that'll listen to them. And they'll say, what do you think? And then when you tell them, they'll hear it. But then they have like five other people telling them something totally different. And they sometimes they just go that way. But I think they just want to be heard. And sometimes they don't necessarily have a choice too, because there's been times where people question some of the things that a startup has done in the act acquisition. And it may have been the acquirer or the legal counsels that forced that, not necessarily the founders. And a lot of the times the founders get forced out at a certain point too, later stage. They bring in the professional CEO or whatever they want to call it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was kind of going to go to my uh, gear towards my next question. And that is, uh, you know, is there a way to, and do you look for this where you're protecting the investor, but you're protecting the CEO as well? Is that something that uh, a CEO can do when they're raising funds and ensuring that a VC doesn't come in and take them out as well. Like that's a very common issue too, right? Where VCs own a good chunk of the company and they just decide you're going the wrong way. We need to take this back and uh, swoop in and make those changes. Have you been through that? Have you seen that before? And is that something that um, startups should pay attention to along their journey as well? Right. So I've never personally been involved in a situation where someone tried to protect themselves, but I have started advising some very early stage startups. I mean, very early. And I've mentioned to them about the dual class structure, because, you know, if you set up the dual class structure and you get a hot company that the VCs and the investors want to be in, they'll accept that. Now, maybe if you're having a hard time raising and they won't accept that, then maybe you would have to change it. And I'm not sure legally how hard it is to change. But if it's, this is your life's work and you're on mission and you're someone who executes fast and you're building a company and it's rocket ship growth, then you know you, you could set up the dual class structure and that would definitely protect you as a founder. And can you explain what this class looks like? 
So yeah, there's many different ones. And recently Palantir had some strange one where they had F shares for founder shares, but it's basically, you could be a very minority owner of a company, like almost less than 1% or even not, nothing, but you have dual class shares that own 50% or 51% of voting rights. So basically your voting rights has all the power at the end that the other people don't really have any power. Because the final say, if you have 50.1%, or even if it's just 50, I would say even if it's like 49, it'd be very hard to get 51% of all the other people together on one thing. So you're probably going to win. But basically 50% or a little bit over or slightly under like 49.9, you basically control the company regardless of what happens. And is that, that's how we worked at it, correct? They insured, well, one, they so owned the company not, too, but they... I, 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 th I think that he had all kinds of weird structures because he had we Company and he had WeWork and then he um, licensed on the trademark or something. He had all kinds of weird stuff going on. But there's definitely a lot of companies that are very high prestigious. I know Facebook has a dual class. So does um, Alphabet, what used to be Google. I think Snapchat does. There's a number of companies that do, so it can definitely work. But... um. I guess it all depends on the individual because I have learned too, some individuals, when they get to a certain point, they hit the wall and all of a sudden the pressure is so much, they would prefer a professional CEO to come in and them just to be like the chairman of the board or on the board or just an advisor to the, the new CEO. Because even with advisors and investors that people to call you up for advice, you know, if you don't keep growing, you're going to hit the wall with people that are growing, they're going to outgrow you. So I always try to keep learning and keep growing. So, you know, I don't hit the wall and get outgrown, but I perfectly understand if a founder who really relied on me for a year or two, all of a sudden gets to a point where they're raising hundreds of millions of dollars and somebody else that's had more experience, they want to rely on them more. Of course, that's the smart thing to do. Agreed. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, when we work on boards or we work in other businesses, I always tell the, the startup that, you know, as they, they progress, we're here at the beginning, which is your early pre-seed and seed round area. But when you get up to that Series A and Series B, we're good as a soundbite, but we shouldn't be on your board. We shouldn't be part of your business. You should have a whole different dynamic of people that are going to help you elevate your business to that next stage. We come in at the bottom and help you get, all, get your feet wet and, and drive and start to build plant the seed and grow the trees. But there's a point where, you know, you're building the jungle and you need to go big and better. So you need to find the right people that are going to fit in that space. And sometimes that fits with the CEO or it fits with the management team. You know, you're looking for people that carry that experience to keep bringing you that next level. Right. I think the second part to your question about investors protecting themselves is I think one of the unintended consequences that nobody saw coming is staying private so long because it used to be like three, five, seven years. And now it's become 10, 12, 15 years. I've even some that were private 30 years now going public. I mean, it just boggles my mind is that um, maybe going in, if everybody realizes, hey, I'm coming in, but, you know, I'm looking to be out in five or seven years that now with a robust secondary market, you actually can get out if it's a company that's well-desired. And now with the, I call it the SPAC attack, I think a lot of emerging companies are gonna get out a lot quicker in the three to five, seven year range. And it's gonna help a lot of people that have already kind of raised too much money and got too high of a valuation that was based mostly on fundraising and growing like a weed. They're gonna get lucky because somebody's gonna SPAC acquire them and they're gonna get the valuation they want. Because I think one of the problems with going public as an emerging company is the cost. But with these SPACs, you also can do the pipe where you get great investors like Fidelity, Wellington, T. Rowe Price. And they, these, these pipes are raising hundreds of millions of dollars. So these companies have hundreds of millions, if not billions. So now they can really go to market, especially in stuff like emerging technologies, you know, electric vehicles, space technology, clean energy, just things that require a lot of capital. And it gives them the chance to succeed. Because one of my things, too, I always think, too, is you have to have enough money to be able to survive long enough for the right time for you to really take off in those, those types of businesses.
Yeah, I uh, fully agree with that and, and totally support that that comment. Now, you mentioned something about this three to five and five to seven and even going up to 30 years before they actually go public. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that might be a lot of the time. I think that a lot just happens to be that the, the company's doing well. They're making good money and they just don't see the, the reason to go public. But uh, over the last 10 years, there has been a, like you said, a big shift. But I think the shift is actually rotating back into companies wanting to go public faster, quicker, sooner, but trying to do it under the right governance level. So there was years where they were getting like maybe one to two companies that were going public that had any value and any merit to go public. And then during the dot com, everybody was trying to drive into that public space, getting out there because the money was huge. Then it kind of dried up and they had a really low number of people IPOing. And then the last couple of years, it's starting to pick back up again. And I think people are realizing these public markets have so much money, liquidity, and value that they really want to target that. We've had companies, that, and this was crazy, making an investment, and the company was um, RTOing in their first three years of business. And we were like, hold on, man. Like, you're not even at this stage yet. How can you be going that fast? And they're like, you know what? We've got $5 million in the account. We're ready to go up on the venture exchange, and we're going to work our way through this. So I think there's a time and, and value for it. Uh, but are you finding that in the U.S.-based uh, structure that companies are looking to move quicker because there's burnout happening and it's happening at a faster rate? So they'd rather get into the public markets, drive in some dollars, move a couple of people out of the business, even if it is the CEO, and then just drive this business into the position where it needs to be? I think we are moving that way because people are starting to see also that when you're a public company, it gives you extra credibility with customers. It gives you an extra currency with your stock. The stock's high where you can make acquisitions with the stock. So I really think we are moving towards that way. And it may be five to seven years, maybe the right time. And I know what you're talking about with the RTOs. I see a lot of the um, psychedelic companies and the cannabis companies from the old boom in one to three years doing the rto and then you guys have the neo exchange which is where they do a little bit more vetting where you're more of a established company they say and you have to hit certain criteria before they let you do that on the neo correct yeah and i guess from a governance standpoint that works as long as you've done all the right things in the business so that when you do go into a public space you're lined up and you're not getting sued and you're not getting beat up for uh, patent infringements and everything else. And then you end up sinking your own company because you can't carry the weight. Um, and I do know that you have to have a good chunk of cash um, liquidity uh, in the company sitting there in order to support it because it costs a lot of money just to maintain your governance and being able to file every quarter. Um, and if you miss a quarter and you bump it out, well, then you're pretty much shooting yourself in the foot because they only allow a little bit of leniency and then boom, they, they drop the gauntlet down on you. So you really have to be uh, built a good finance team around supporting your uh, your quarterly updates and yearly year end. So uh, it might be a little bit tougher, but again, is the mindset there that, hey, I got to get my money back into the hands of the investors. I got to really drive this out. So maybe that's the, the place we need to be. And maybe our target instead of 10 years from now, it's going to be in five. And is that reasonable based on the growth that they have? Yeah, I think in the U.S. it is going to change back to the five to seven year because it started changing to, oh, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. You know, who cares? But the companies that are, like you said, 30 years, those were companies that are making a lot of money and tend to stay private and were very closely held, mostly owned by a family. And yeah. I guess they've seen now with all the liquidity in the markets, hey, it's time to take some chips off because a lot of people don't realize, too, your paper net worth 
versus your liquid net worth can be very different. There could be people that are billionaires on paper because they have this closely held family business and they're barely making it on the cash because they're paying themselves so low a salary and just putting everything back in the business and growing and taking care of the customers and the employees. And then once they hit that IPO, if they've had the company 30 years and they can finally breathe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that is, uh, that, I think that's way more common than not, right? Uh, I, I and think that's in worldwide. Um, I think in some things that Trump posted, it was very similar to that as well. Everything is net worth is all built inside the books. And then on the other side, everything is just managing, right? So, right. Um, and again, tax systems are way different in the US than they are in Canada. Uh, but I think that you're getting more universal in a tax setup anyways, because uh, countries are all trying to work the same way to bring the same balance in. Um, and it, it, kind of, uh, it kind of switches us into something a little bit um, in the same bucket, but a little bit different. There's also tax incentives for investors. And in Canada, they're regionally based. They're set up by province. They have ways that uh, investors can get half cash back and things like that. In Ontario, there's not really any tax benefits for us if we make investments. Um, is there any benefit to the investors in a US-based structure uh, that they can benefit from investing in early stage companies? So that, I can't remember the exact IRS number for it, but there is something that if you invest in a company and um, if you're in the company for, I think, at least five years, 10 times your money can be tax free, but you have to really like cross all your I's and dot your T's. And there's some debate whether or not safes count. So people say like if it was a convertible note until it converted, it probably didn't count. But does a safe note count as, as starting the clock? And then you have like the 83, I think it's a 83B election, that may not be the right number, where if you're an advisor or employee to start up, you can buy your shares for like one-tenth of a penny or one-hundredth of a penny, whatever they're saying it is, and you can file an election so you don't get taxed twice. So there's there's different kinds of um, tax incentives, but you have to really follow all of it to the letter of the law or it'll get denied. And then they have this thing that's more recent called opportunity zones, where if people invest in an opportunity zone, they may be able to defer their capital gains 100%. But I think that was initially made in thoughts of just real estate. But some tax advisors are saying that with startups, if you invest in an opportunity zone, that counts. I don't know if that's true. And I, I bet you it's a gray area. And until it ever gets challenged, no one really knows. <laughs> just like the stacking of the saves and the preferred, preferred safe shares versus you know, regular preferred shares. Nobody knows what's senior until it ever gets challenged. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because you brought up a lot of great points around different ways, different safes. Um, tax benefits, uh, the way companies got to protect themselves. It, it, it really sounds very, um, here sounds super basic compared to the level of intricacies that have been put together inside of startup world in the United States. And I don't know if this is done to, to keep that high net worth individual focused in on what they're investing in, or if it's done to prevent others from coming in, encroaching in the space and wanting to invest money. Uh, because now you've got these social platforms that are coming in um, that are also allowing for uh, everybody to kind of invest into startups. So now it kind of feels like you're going to get stuck in this mayhem where people are going to start fighting back that they're investing in companies like ICOs and they're really just capturing money, walking away, failing the company and the owners walk away with all this money and there's no way to govern it, manage it or control it. Yeah, that's another interesting thing, too. So for first of all, the safe, I believe, was created by Paul Graham and Y Combinator to save the founders money so they didn't spend, you know, 50K just to get the regular docs from the lawyer. So I think that's why that was created. And then there's been innovation on the safe because, of course, they they found, you know, bugs in it, for lack of a better term. But when the computer science guy invents something, 
you know, he wasn't yep. really a, a legal guy, I guess. He might have had some legal guidance. And then I think historically the accredited investor rule has been meant to keep out the little guy, but they have all these great platforms, like you said, Reg CF and whatnot, but they've even come up with things like called the crowd note now. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, are people going to be in for a surprise when some of them don't convert an acquisition or in an acquisition if it didn't convert the way they thought or when the company goes public? Because technically the crowd note, a lot of them I've seen don't convert unless there's an exit and it's not real specific on what kind of exit. Because when they first came out with some of those platforms, you know, I'd test them out with like $100 or $500 or the minimum was just so I could see the docs and see how it works. And, you know, it's so early in that crowdfunding thing in the last few years, we haven't really seen any challenges to anything yet to know what's going to happen as a result of something unintended. And is there any um, tax incentive or tax issues that come out of it? Like if one of them does exit, has there been any exits in this way of gaining capital as well that you've seen? I, I think there has been much, but... there, there has been some small exits in the um crowdfunding space where a company might have had some VC money and some regular people money on accredited investors. I guess they call them common folk for lack of a better term. Okay. And they're, they're kind of quiet. So we don't really, like if they got acquired and it wasn't a good acquisition, you probably never really hear about it. I even ponder do the people in the crowdfunding platform because I know I had invested in a company that did a reg A, but I had invested as an accredited investor. They got acquired a company for stock only. And so, you know, I, I know I have stock in this new company. I'm wondering to people who did it on the crowdfunding platform, what happened with them? Were they even notified or maybe they yeah. do have stock in it? Because a lot of those crowdfunding platforms are using the crowd notes. And on some of the platforms, it's just one entry on the cap table onto the crowd note. And some of them are using some kind of trust or something. So it's one entry. But then there's other ones where they're selling common shares where they have 2,000 people on the, on the cap table. So I imagine it largely depends on the structure of when they did the crowd sale, for lack of a better term. And then ICOs was interesting. Too, because it showed the number of people who wanted to get in these things early. Just the problem was a lot of these projects didn't even have a pro it was just a white paper or an idea. And of course, most of them were grossly incompetent. Even if they didn't intend to be a fraud, what they were trying to build literally would take hundreds of millions. So of course they wouldn't make it even if they raised 10 million. Because there are some companies that were legitimate that raised hundreds of millions that are just releasing the product three, four years later. And they had VC money too, and they, they just were able to do it because it was just impossible to do at the time, technically. It took that four years of experimentation and literally spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. And, and I know the ICOs got blocked and now they're, they're uh, IT, ITOs or I, ISOs or whatever the new term is. Um, but yeah, there, there's been a shift in that space. And, and now like what you're talking about, it really makes it interesting because I'm finding that a lot of companies are doing whatever it takes to raise money. So, you know, they're, they're accepting terms they probably shouldn't. They're putting out things in, in terms that they probably shouldn't put out there, uh, which means they're losing the wrong value, but they're not paying attention to it because they just want money to stay afloat. And then they're going to these social platforms and they're allowing those to go through. And it kind of, uh, in a way, yeah, you said, like you said earlier, you might learn something through this process, but I don't know if in five years you want to learn that you own 1% of your company that you've been working and hauling butt on, and now you own 1% of it. Sure, if you're making a million dollar paycheck, I guess there's some good value in there. Uh, you're still getting paid. Uh, maybe it'll, it'll go somewhere else. And the, the, the winning option is that you um, liquidate or get bought out. But it kind of gets a little scary that when we're all fighting or everybody's fighting for that penny, that uh, things might get missed. And then you're going to find out later, years later that there's a, a bigger problem that you didn't foresee. And that could be around the social investing all the way through to uh, 
um, the type of safe or the type of documents that you kept using when you should have got legal in there to help out? Yeah, I think we're really moving into a world of super haves and have nots. So like the COVID really stretched it out. I mean, you had the haves and have nots and now it's becoming super haves or super duper haves and have nots. So you have one group that can raise the money, get the terms and raising ungodly amounts and another group that is just doing anything they can to raise money so they can survive. And it's funny too, you mentioned the different names so that they went from ICO and then they talked about the STO, which was a security token. There's a few of those out there. Hadn't really taken off yet. I think it may in the future, but we're very early. Then they have IEOs, initial exchange offerings that took off for a second and then died down and then took off a little bit again. And now we have um, IDOs, initial DeFi offerings, where you're not even raising money, but the people who are actually adding value by using the platforms like Uniswap get a, get a gift of an airdrop of a token. I actually like that idea, but I, I'm fearful that you know regulators eventually are going to come in and poison that and make them securities in the United States. Yeah, and, and they almost all, from everything I've read and seen, a lot of them fall under securities no matter what. Anything that you've got when you're exchanging money, equity, or value at some point in time, it's hard not to regulate it around some sort of financial structure that will balance it out um, because you've got an exchange of dollars coming from one entity to another to help support the growth and build. And I think that the, the fear is that there's ways around it and all they do is keep morphing it and changing it to avoid that connection. But at the end, it, it is. It's hand, money changing hands. So uh, I'm not sure. Right, if there's no. a Go ahead. I think the problem is, too, is even if you do an initial DeFi offering and you're just giving the token to the users and saying it has no value, the minute people start, it gets on an exchange and people are buying it because they think it's going to go up in value or people are trading it on, you know, peer-to-peer DEXs or whatever because they think it's going to go up in value, then you start getting murky because yep. people are expecting to gain value off of something. So then well, it, it may become who's a exchanging free thing? at that point. Like very rare do you exchange here, take my free piece of paper. Eventually somebody wants something for it and it's going to exchange for some sort of value. Uh, no matter what, there's a value. I don't know if you remember way back in the day, there was that, uh, was it the red paper clip? And uh, the person started off with one paper clip and he wanted to get a house or something. That was his end goal. And he traded a paper clip all the way up until he actually owned a house. So, and all he did was trade things. So there's some monetary value that got all the way through from trading one thing to a next to get to that house. Now, did he have to pay tax on that? I don't know, but I'm sure that would be interesting to find out. And now I'm going to be super curious and I'm going to go back and read that story. Um, but it literally was something like 20 changes and he went from a paperclip to a home. And I think the home was in like Manitoba, Canada or something like that. And it wasn't massive, but I'm telling you now that property's worth a lot more money than it was 20 years ago when the internet started kind of thing, right? So it's going to be interesting how the how the the securities exchange and everybody else start to monitor how uh, these ICOs and CTOs and IDOs and all these things are actually working and how they're bringing funding and dollars into a market and how they're funding companies and then what that payout is expected for the entrepreneur and for the people that are investing. Uh, it scares. It's kind of scary in a way when you look at the investment side. When you're trying to get funds and you don't care where it's going, um, how many of these businesses are validated? And does it, you know, does that mean that because you went to the public that it's at their own uh, cognizant that if you're scamming them, you're scamming them and you just have to accept that it's a scam? Like what's validating that this company's real? Um, who's validating it? If it's just a system and I drop this up there and I say, hey, this is my next new cool super idea. Um, and like you said, it could take hundreds of millions of dollars to build this. 
but I get enough uh, regular people that just don't invest in early stage companies and I raise a million dollars on a social platform and then I say two months later that it failed, is that not a scam and is that not illegal? What, what determines what can stay structured and um, make that an entity that's worth investing? Who's validating that these things are real? Just like a company from another country can come in and demand cash somehow, gets it and then walks away. And I don't know if there's a regulatory body that manages this per country, but all of these things are kind of uh, the due diligence isn't there, right? So it's just like going to an angel group. If nobody's doing that background check or that double effort, then uh, you could be stuck investing in a company that doesn't exactly exist. It could just be a shell or uh, some sort of Ponzi scheme, right? Yeah, those are real tough questions because it's, it's hard to know someone's intent because like, I was saying a lot of these um, ICOs were just grossly incompetent. They weren't actually intending to scam. And then what happened is when someone, I think, jealousy and FOMO comes in, somebody hears so-and-so raised 10, and then they get it over their heads because all of a sudden they got all this money in a bank account. They buy a real big office. They start sponsoring NASCAR. So they're basically using the money incorrectly, even though they didn't actually steal it. But then you have other cases where people just took in all this money and said, thanks for the memories and disappeared. Obvious scam. Yeah. And then sometimes people intended to do it well, took in one or two million dollars and said oh my god we can't do this with one or two million well, let's try to raise what we need and then just started saying things that weren't true saying anything to get the money and it became almost like a ponzi scheme or in over their head yeah way in over their head for sure well it's interesting uh james i think uh one i love this conversation because we went <laughs> right across this whole spectrum of how investing really works and the in-depths of all of it um and i've never actually had to get to have this conversation with someone because we're always talking about cool really the fundamentals of how a business works, not really on the side of what are the pitfalls? What are the things that we got to look for and investors? What things that we got to be scared about and we got to validate? Um, I had one startup tell me that, you know, they got to the point of like literally ready to invest money into this startup. Um, and it, there was something that triggered them. They checked into it and they just literally was off the wall type of thing. And it was all a scam. And they were inches away from dumping in a million dollars. And, uh, wow. and it was, you know, those things to me, you're thinking, how is that possible? But really at the end of the day, when you build something that, uh, is uh, covert enough, people may not see a lot of that information. Right. And if you're not getting enough people doing that due diligence or diving in, man, these pop possibilities can happen. Um, and we've had, we had similar things happen in one of our companies where, uh, you know, it just blew our mind that, uh, somebody went through the lengths of, um, uh, building a relationship with the startup and then uh, pretending they were an investor and then not being. And, uh, you know, you're just, it blows your mind what people will go through and what they'll do. But I guess in a way uh, to keep this positive is that investors have to do their homework and startups have to keep, keep their, uh, uh, their cap table clean and their equity available, but also managing how they're going to grow their company. And that means putting things into timelines and lining things up when you need advisors, when you need coaches, um, when you're taking in funds, how you're taking them in and use the lawyers and use the people that have the smarts to make sure that you're balancing that out. And if you do go to social markets to, to raise funds, you're just as accountable to them as you are to the people that uh, are accredited investors and make sure that you treat everybody as equal and making sure that you're growing that business and keeping everybody fed with information so that your success is their success and vice versa. 
Right. I kind of look at it too. Like even in the public market, something could end up being a scam or not what you thought it was, especially in some of the smaller cap companies. So you got to kind of, even in the public market, you got to really be careful. And the way I kind of look at it, as long as somebody's managing their own personal risk and is not putting any money in anything, even in a big company like a, like a Microsoft, I mean, I doubt this would happen, but something could happen where someone disrupts them later and the Microsoft stock could drop 90%. So you got to kind of manage your risk and you only put in anything that you think you could afford to lose and just have a spectrum of risk, almost like a barbell. Like really risky, probably moonshots isn't going to hit, but if it hits, wow, it really make all the difference. And then, you know, some of the blue chips and everything in between kind of managing your risk. I always kind of look at like 70, 20, 10, 70% core, 20% complementary, you know, in what your mindset is and your mental framework, and then 10% other bets. And then you hope out of the 10% other bets, one of them is going to make all the difference. And it's going to be so monstrous with the power law that your growth happens there. And the probability is that other 10% could all go to zero. But if it did, it wouldn't ruin your life or screw up your investment portfolio or anything like that. I love it. Yeah, that 10% of high, high risk. The moonshot, right. but you got to have something <laughs> in that bucket. So, um, yeah, I do think that that's, uh, that's great. And that 70%, um, where, what bucket does that fit in? What is the, how do you look at that 70%? So I would say like your core competency. So just to, you know, not give anybody investment advice or anything because we're not RIAs, but just let's say like, for instance, in public markets, if you were in public markets, if 70% was like in your S&P 500 index or like a NASDAQ index, if that's what you liked, or, you know, I guess if they haven't counted a TSX index or CSE, if they have an index like that. So that yep. would be your core. So you're going to get basically what the market gets. And I, I'm not sure how it is in the Canadian indexes, but in the United States, like the S&P is market cap weighted. So you kind of have to be careful because really five or six companies is driving the whole thing. But those are also the five or six companies that are basically growing the most at this time in our technology and doing the best. And as time goes, you know, the S&P will change companies in the index. So um, I think the Dow is price weighted, so it's a little different. But the S&P has 503 or 504 companies. It's actually not 500. It's more than 500 because a couple of them have two classes shares, believe it or not, that are in the index. But I think that being your core, that's more safe being in like an S&P 500 for your 70% core. And then 20% complimentary, for example, might be the stuff you really like to use or know, like your Facebooks or your Amazon, or maybe it's the product you really like that I'm not thinking of, or like Starbucks, or someone loves McDonald's if they love that kind of thing, even or Chipotle, something like that. And then the last 10% would be like really risky things like your crowdfunding, or if you're an accredited investor, some really speculative startups that are going to change the world with biotech or some kind of... Um, clean energy or something, or if you're not accredited, even some just risky biotech small caps in your 10%. I love it. Or ICOs even, tokens. And I always say stuff like the Bitcoin, gold, and silver are kind of like insurance. So everybody should, you know, possibly have like 1% of their liquid net worth in some kind of insurance, like, you know, mixed up with Bitcoin, gold, silver, or something like that. Or if they really like Bitcoin, 1% Bitcoin, or maybe even a little more, it's their personal preference, but just as kind of an insurance policy. So I look at the Bitcoin more as digital gold. Diversify yourself as much as you can. And it sounds like you've got a great mix of how you diversify. Uh, it's brilliant. Thanks. I like it. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to say that I've learned a ton. And uh, I'm, I'm super uh, excited that we got to chat, James. So now we're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. Um, and uh, then we got a, a couple last questions for you. But uh, this has been awesome. So uh, let's jump into the, the rapid fire side. So uh, how did you get started in early stage investing? You said you started this four years ago. What got you into it? What made you think I got to work with startups? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I got invested in early stage investing mainly in 2016. And um, the reason I really wanted to invest in startups is because like any other type of investment, you get to um, work with the founders early and kind of be part of something. So they're building the next great thing. And if it works out, you can be like, wow, I was part of that. I was one of the first checks. Now, of course, if they become the next Facebook, they were the kind of person that would have made it anyway and executed. But I'd like to think that I had something to do with that since I was there in the beginning. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Um What's your favorite part of startup startup investing? So my favorite part is really the privilege of working and getting to know great people, networking. I'm meeting great people like you and people in your audience and speaking at different events, networking and learning because the learning is invaluable because I never know what in the future is going to come up or something I might have learned that seems so innocuous could be something that could make all the difference either in my personal life or in someone else's life. Well, you've done a fantastic job because I think you were telling me earlier that you were in like the top... 50 list of investors in North America. So you've done a fantastic job on moving yourself through the funnel and getting interest and getting people excited for what you're doing. And I think that's brilliant. Um, all right. How many dollars or companies do you invest in per year? Yeah. So when I started out, I started out doing a lot more, getting a lot more data points, but going forward, I'm probably going to do like four to 12 companies a year. Maybe you could take a little bit bigger size and um, also doing a little bit more diligence than I used to do. Cause when you first start out, you don't really know a lot about what to exactly diligence. So, you know, I would go to accelerators, demo days and invest in some of those companies because I figured they did the basic diligence. But outside of that and through time, I've learned more and more of the kind of things you would need to diligence and to check. And you should even double check that they did that stuff because you never know, things could have changed or maybe they just didn't do it. Because I've seen examples of companies raising massive rounds, getting the series D, E, F these days. And it turned out that none of the early investors did any of the diligence on the data room stuff. They just received the data room and they just invested because some hot lead invested and it was a hot company and nobody ever checked things. That's how we ended up with the Theranosis of the world. Yep. <laughs> oh, I yep, agreed with that. I think about 1% of investors actually review any content that has anything to do with the company which is tough. Um, I think this mentality, right? It's tough. I think the stage too has to do a lot with how much diligence you do too, because obviously when they're very, very early, there's not as much the diligence. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, do you follow up invest and what percent? So yeah, I probably followed up in about 5% of the companies. I mean, I don't do it a lot because I kind of look to the ones that are really executing and did what they said they were going to do, hitting their KPIs. Of course, there's going to be some variants where like they did a pivot or they didn't hit a certain KPI. But really, I found the founders are able to execute and move fast are the ones that you want to follow up on. And they had the ability to attract a lead investor in their later rounds that has some meaning. like it. Any notable portfolio companies you'd like to share? Um. So a lot of the stuff in the last four years, the stuff that and I don't know if you would term a company that did an ICO and exit or not that turned out big. So not really in that frame. But I think now in year four, some of the companies that I invested in are going to end up being notable. I mean, one of them just did Google for Black Founders, Shearshare, and they just raised a big round that was announced. And they got a lot of investors in there now. So I think they're going to do really well. And then um, a company called Bloom that's actually in Canada used to be called Lbox, but they changed their name. They're, they're doing pretty good. They went through 500 startups. Yeah, I think they're I consumer, I, I consumer product I company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people have heard of them. They're they're doing really well. So I, I think those two. And then hopefully a couple other ones that um are getting ready to um raise another round and try to go into blitz scale mode that have really hit product market fit. Hopefully those end up doing real well. But you know, only time will tell because sometimes the ones who are doing real well today end up not being the ones that end up being a really big exit. Because I've seen some companies that were doing really well before COVID that ended up 
shutting down and I'm actually surprised. And some that were just kind of like petering along, slowly growing, took off from COVID. So <laughs> the world's magical. Um, <laughs> any verticals you focus on? Yeah, so I try to stay sector agnostic because I'm trying to look for where the puck is going and I'm looking for founders that can execute and they really have their own vision of where the world is going and not where it is today. So I always say non-consensus and right because that's where all the outsized returns are probably going to be because if everybody's in a space or trying to do something, it's crowded like the restaurants and it's too much competition. But if there's not a lot of competition, you can get to a scale that acts as your moat because I always say you can't fork a community. So if you have a big community, when people try to copy you, you have some protection because now Days, it's too easy to start a startup. Anybody can almost copy anything. For sure. Uh, do you guys look to take board seats or lead rounds? Yeah, so I've never led a round before. I've started to think about doing syndicates or something to, to lead rounds and maybe starting out becoming a board observer to kind of do more networking, more learning and learn how that goes, but not necessarily being on, on a board right away. I was going to be on a board once for a company that was trying to do a reg A, but they ended up not being able to do the reg A because it takes forever for the SEC to approve it. And they kept incurring more and more and more legal costs. And it got into like two, 300,000. They ran out of money and they never did it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, yeah, that's not going to be good. Uh, any, uh, any final things that you do when you're making an investment on the due diligence, any paperwork, anything that you like that's a must that you like to make sure that you have when you're making a deal? Yeah, so I've started to make some changes because, you know, initially started out with very light or no diligence and then, um, you know, looking at the data room and things like that. And now if they have a couple of customers, you know, I might want to verify a couple of customers or talk to a couple other investors. But one thing now I really decided to do too is like if I commit to something saying, okay, how long do you think it's going to take to raise? Of course, they always say, oh, I'm going to close in 30 days. I'm like, are you sure? And so maybe they say 90 days. So if you don't close in 90 days and my commitment may have to be rethought or renewed, or I still may do it. But that also shows, do they have the ability to raise that money in the time they said they did? Because you don't really have a lot of data points proving they executed. But one thing I've started doing too is doing diligence, just talking to somebody as diligence, not the person's a good, when people say background checks, they think, oh, is a person a good person or criminal? I mean, obviously you want to be a good person and not a criminal. But the thing is, I want a diligence now. What have they executed before in their life? Have they done something totally unrelated to this in their life, but they executed and everything they did, they may have executed. And you're like, wow, this is the kind of person that gets stuff done. I mean, like if they swam across a certain ocean when the ship was sinking to come from another country or, you know, that they, they were an orphan or something and they overcame it, or maybe they broke their leg or something and said they couldn't play baseball, but they wanted to play so bad as a child, they, they played anyway. Stuff like that, because it shows the person's character and their habits. I love it. Yeah. And uh, I can see where that's coming from. So 100% agree with that. Love it. Dedication and uh, drive and can they execute. Um, is there uh, uh, any preferred terms? Do you care if it's pref shares, common shares, convertible notes, safes? Uh, or you avoid safes and everything else works. Yeah, so I've been thinking about that a lot. But unfortunately, in some of the hot deals, if you really want in, if, if you want in, the safe's the way, the only way you can get in. That's the only way you can get in. But obviously, preferred shares. And, um, you know, if you could get a senior liquidity preference, that would be better. But, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, as long as everyone's on the same playing field with liquidity preference, that becomes parapasse. I think they call it. I'm pronouncing it wrong in the United States. That if, that there's a down round, everybody kind of gets the same preference. You know, I, I'm cool with that. But um, the thing about common shares, there's been a lot of debate whether or not you should invest in common shares. I've done it before because in the United States, a lot of people don't know that the board's duty is actually to the common shareholders, not to the preferred, because you're supposed to know better. So if something bad happens, they're supposed to act in the interest of the um common. Now, whether they do or not, you know, it's 
remains to be seen. But preferred shares, though, for venture investments early is probably the best thing, or that you know that's going to convert to preferred. But I've learned as one of the lessons that sometimes it says the convertible note converts to preferred, but a company does a rake CF, which is technically public. So they didn't lie. It converted to common, like the doc said, but nobody thought a rake CF, or maybe didn't even really exist at the time, would make your shares go common and convert you. Yeah. The little tricks of the trade. Yeah, and, and I'm sure the founders didn't even know that. It's probably nope. a surprise to everyone. Exactly, little fine print. I like <laughs> that. Um, all right, well, that, that was great. Uh, great, great questions. So the next one I have before you is, um, we always look for a nice story that really exemplifies something that you've seen or you've been through with a startup. And that could be brink of destruction. They pull it off, they made it work, hockey stick growth. Or it could be the total reverse. Like you said, they were sailing along, doing great things. COVID hit and they sank. Is there something that, a good story that we can all get behind and really just you know, take a learning from? Yeah, I think a good story is another company. They were, they were kind of, um, you know, just moving along slowly. I mean, some people would call it a, zo a zombie because they had some growth and it came down a little bit and they were moving along slowly because what happens sometimes is some of the ideas that are innovative at the time if you don't move fast enough somebody catches up to you and i think people had caught up to them but then covid hit and just magically their, their growth felt like that and then all of a sudden instead of looking for investors because they were getting by because you know they had some revenue and stuff an investor contacted them and invested over a million dollars and became the lead and now, and now they're able hopefully it really takes off because they're getting ready to raise another round because the growth really took off so they're going to use this money they just got to really try to hyper blitz scale. So, so I'm hopeful on that. So it's kind of a lesson in determination because one of the things I look for too is, is this the founder's life's work? How easily will they be persuaded to quit? Because a lot of very talented engineers could easily go to Google or something and get 250,000 a year. Or if you're an AI data scientist and you're top notch 600K, but you're struggling with a startup. So what's going to keep them from not taking that opportunity? At, and at what point? Because at some point it may be in everyone's best interest that they do that. I, like it. I actually had a company that was doing well and the CTO decided because I guess, he, I mean, I don't know the real reasons, but I'm guessing he might've got FOMO because friends of his were in startups that were raising hundreds of millions and other friends were making four or 500,000, you know, as data scientists. So he ended up, you know, wanting to leave that startup and they ended up deciding to fold because they knew they couldn't replace him. And they, they had, they had some money left. So they gave people back, you know, certain amount on the dollar. So that, that's another kind of thing that can happen. Hmm. No, that's good. I like it. Well, I think we kind of hit the spot there on uh, our full scope of, of business preferences and going through all that. So I appreciate that. And we're going to switch just a little bit for a second into more of the personal side. Uh, so okay. what's your favorite sports team? Um, well, in baseball, and, and it's LA Dodgers, because not just because they just won. I've been a Dodger fan forever, and they oh, haven't won for 32 Dude, years. You're just jumping on the uh, bandwagon now? What's going no, on? I remember, I remember <laughs> Kirk Gibson hitting that walk-off home run. I think it was in 1988 in Game 1 of the World Series. I believe that's the last time they won. And yeah. they've lost like four or five times in the last decade or so. And, and I think it was two or three years ago, the Astros allegedly, or they were caught cheating. Now, I don't know if that changed the result of the World Series, but I, I go around saying we were robbed. And then in other sports, I've become more of a fan of players. Like in, in football, I've become a fan of quarterbacks. So I don't necessarily have one team, but I, I kind of like start to follow one quarterback. Like I used to follow Dan Marino of the Dolphins and thought he was the greatest and they never won. So I didn't never bandwagon that, but they never won a Super Bowl. Yeah. And then I became a Peyton Manning fan and he, he did win a couple. Yeah. And then um, 
I became kind of a, a Brady a Brady fan, but now I'm kind of becoming a fan of that Pat Mahomes kid, whether or not he wins, because I think he has so much talent. He's changing the game of football, just the way he's throwing it like a baseball player and, and be able to do so many crazy things. Yeah, agreed. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, the next one, and that's awesome that you've that you got these teams. And the reason why I ask these questions is because it's a good way for people to find ways to connect with you, right? So they learn a little bit more about your right. personal side so they don't have to always come at you with um, that. And I learned this from a podcast through one of our companies on Skip the Line. They run a podcast, and they ask these types of questions at the end. And I'm like, these are awesome. This is a great way to get to know somebody. And since I'm very bad at personal stuff, this is a great way for me to learn and become more personable. So uh, the next Ooh. one is your favorite movie. <laughs> And what character would you play in that movie? So my favorite movie is a series. It's the Star Wars series. Okay. And I think I think it was it was Empire Strikes Back that they um introduced Yoda. I always liked Yoda because he looks real small, but he's really old and wise. And I yep. think in one of the later um editions where they showed some of the old school, they showed him fighting with a lifesaver, this little guy jumping around all crazy. And I was like, wow, he even got skills there too. And you, you wouldn't really think that. So I think people underestimate him. But a lot of his sayings too are very wise that he would say. And you might have to really think about them to get the meaning. And I'm sure they can be interpreted in different ways. But yep. I just think a lot of a lot of his stuff was really wise. And he's underestimated because he doesn't look threatening or, or powerful in any way, but he really is. Yeah, I love it. Star Wars and Yoda. My, <laughs> my mind was going to Lando. Do you know, do you remember Lando? Lando Calrissian, yeah. yeah. So when you were He's saying Star dude. Wars, I was thinking that would have been your guy. I'm like, it's got to be Lando because that guy had the most character, the most charisma, uh, always strategically planning everything. So I'm like, he's going to pick Lando. And then you're like, Yoda, which is even better because Yoda obviously is maybe not as energetic, but man, that guy knew what was going on no matter where the hell he was. So I love it. <laughs> yeah, both good, but I, I like Yoda. That's cool. I don't know if you're only three feet tall, but I kind of pictured you a little taller than that. Yeah, I'm five, four and a half. So I've heard that Asian people are getting taller over time. And a lot of Chinese people now are six foot, but um, I'm Korean, but... And I've heard that from my age range, people were like between five foot and five four. Now they're like between five six and five eight, so they're getting taller over time. But yeah, I'm five four and a half. <laughs> I see you put the Yoda, then that's good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, uh, this we come to the end, uh, man. It's been a pleasure. I love the energy. You've done a fantastic job. I think everybody's going to learn a ton from this. And the way we like to end our show is that. We give you the last word. So anything you want to share with investors or startups, I, I leave it for you to, to, uh, to end the show for us. But tell us what you're thinking. And uh, again, thank you for your time today. Sure. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And what I always like to say when people ask you to end on a note is, is, you know, the media and everyone acts like we're in the worst times ever. But I actually think we're in the greatest times ever with technology and the way we're living. And, you know, if somebody dreams of something or wants to do something, just keep at it, keep learning and never give up and eventually you'll achieve your goal. Because even if you start a company and your vision was to do a certain thing and it doesn't pan out now, you could start the next company when the timing's right doing exactly that. The example I always give is Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn had social net, it didn't make it, but then later he had LinkedIn that made it and it was still a social network. But social net, it just wasn't the right time. I love it. You're a good man, James. Thank Thanks, you very man. much for today. Uh, we'll be in touch, but have an awesome Ooh. day, man. Thank you, that was awesome. Appreciate it, man. <laughs> good thank you have a great day thank you oh that was brilliant uh great conversation with uh, uh james sauer and man energy that guy was brilliant really enjoyed the, the whole conversation 
Uh, I love the idea around, you know, if, if you got to be saving time, money, using the painkiller, making it work. I uh, talked a lot about all the different uh, uh, from liquidity preferences to class shares and, and how to structure the company, things to avoid. And this is from an investor. This isn't a lawyer. This is awesome. Just the things that he's experienced and the, the no's and the do's and the good things, and the bad things. A lot of stuff to pay attention to there for sure. Um, even on the side of, you know, getting a company that's going to close in 90 days and that might change the way you're investing or the preference side. So I think that there's a lot of things there that we can learn. Um, man, it was great. Really liked it. Um, balancing your portfolio for investors from, you know, 70% in, uh, you know, common companies that are doing things that you like, um, usually cap weighted S and P style companies, and then working on that 20%, that complimentary things that you use and work with every day that you support and like, and then that 10% of big shot moonshot companies, man, that's great. So a good way to diversify and a way to look at your portfolio. Anyhow, James. Uh, the community thanks you. Brilliant.